it's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. A month ago, Christie's Auction House sold Andy Warhol's painting Shot Sage Blue Marilyn for a record-breaking $170 million. That's $195 million with fees. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Christie's for the sale of Thomas and Doris Amand's great collection. The painting became the most expensive piece of 20th century art and American art ever to be sold at auction. I was there that night at the back of the room, and over the course of two hours, I watched this collection of artworks sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. The room was lit up in bright lights and professionally live-streamed for millions of people watching at home. It was kind of like being in the studio audience at Saturday Night Live. And it was pure theater. Thank you for the underbits there, sir. And we move to the Clemente. Now. One painting by Francesco Clemente started at $70,000. 70, 80, 90, I have 100. And a bidding war took it to a million and a half. On five in the sale room at one million five. Still not yours, Elaine. Are you out? Here it is then, Pete. You have it here. Third row at one million five. You, sir. One million five. Congratulations. Halfway through, this veteran art reporter sitting next to me turned to me and he says, So, how do you like watching rich people spend a lot of money? And all I could say was, it's a lot of money. Honestly, it was disorienting to see so much money move so fast. At the end of the night came the Marilyn, the grand finale. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we come to the American dream, Warhol's sublime depiction of Marilyn Monroe, arguably one of the most iconic pictures of the 20th century. And you can even hear in the tape that the bidding here was different. It wasn't a fast-paced bidding war. It was quieter, more deliberate. The bids were coming in slow. Not in increments of 10,000, but in increments of 10 million. And Alex Rotter, you're definitely out as well. Here it is then, the gentleman's bid, ladies and gentlemen, at 170 million for the Warhol is selling here to you, sir, at 170 million dollars. The thing about the Maryland sale is that we were all watching something that Christie's had been preparing for months. They'd been preparing with marketing, with messaging, with promotion, but also with intelligence gathering. Like, what had paintings like it been selling for behind closed doors? Who's interested? Christie's wanted the spring season to be one of the highest grossing of all time. And it was. $2.5 billion was made this season at the New York auctions alone. Christie's accomplished their goal of selling the Maryland for as much as possible, even if it didn't go for quite as high as they'd hoped. Would I have been happier if it sold for 250, 300, 350? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Not only because I wanted to do well by the foundation. I also believe, I truly believe that the Maryland is a painting that deserves this price whatever that price is, to be one of the most expensive, to be one of the most significant paintings. Because for me, oh, she, and I'm, I'm a Warholian, so to speak, so I, I, I 
do believe in Warhol and and the genius of him. And this is his most essential and most well-known work. That's Alex Rotter. You just heard him mentioned in the auction tape. He bids on behalf of clients at auction, but his job is much, much larger. He's the head of 20th and 21st century art at Christie's. No surprise, Alex is one of the art market's top salesmen. We'll talk to him later in the show. But first, as the spring season wraps up, we're going to learn more about the art market from two of our top experts, Jan Daly and Melanie Gerlis. They can explain to us how different players in the art world work together to make sure that these prices keep rising. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. The night the Marilyn was sold, Christie's Auction House was brimming with exceptional, iconic art. They were selling the collection of Thomas and Doris Amon for charity, and it had pieces by the super famous, like Cy Twombly and Basquiat, and also by some lesser-known artists, like Anne Craven and Mike Bidlow. But Warhol's Marilyn was indisputably the centerpiece. It was lit in bright lights behind the auctioneer, the star of the show. You probably know this painting. It's on postcards, t-shirts, mugs. It's the quintessential Andy Warhol Americana pop art portrait. Marilyn Monroe looking at you with electric blue eyeshadow on hooded eyes, rose skin, bright yellow hair, all stark against a sage background. And it's part of a series of five. In the weeks leading up to the evening sale, Christie's had pulled out all the stops. Before the auction, they had it presented in their gallery at the end of this red carpet in a dark, empty room with a single spotlight. They even projected Marilyn onto the side of Rockefeller Center. And it's no wonder. The painting was estimated to be sold for 200 to $300 million. The Christie's team came up with that number after months of research. I think the big difference between the market now and five years ago is how much work the auction houses do beforehand in making sure a work will sell for a certain amount. Now, sometimes that includes getting an outside investor to promise to pay a certain amount, which kind of fixes a level, but they will have lined up buyers. I mean, I find auctions now are a bit like watching prearranged private sales. Melanie Gerlis has been writing about this for years. She's the art market columnist for the FT and editor-at-large for the art newspaper. She's written books on this. I invited her on together with the FT's arts editor, Jan Daly, because they're just both excellent at explaining things. Melanie starts us off with where the art market is right now, with the spring auction season just behind us. So, Melanie, I'd love to start just by knowing what the trends are that you've seen this season. There are two trends running in parallel at the moment. One is actually that some of these seven, eight, nine-figure sales are actually not that surprising. They're priced in. They've been happening in the private market, from what I understand. Private deals are happening at these levels. But -hmm. you've got this other trend going on at the moment of incredible speculation. So young artists' works that were painted this year or last year estimated you know twenty to thirty thousand dollars selling for one to one point five million, which personally I actually find more extraordinary than 195 mm-hmm. million for a Warhol painting. Can I ask why you find that more extraordinary? I think that the chance of a work priced at twenty thousand dollars that sells for a million selling 
in a year's time for another million is probably zero. Whereas in some way, a work that has gone through the art history canon is going to possibly keep its value. Right, right. The art market is hot all around right now. Works by the most famous artists, what some call blue chip art, are bringing in record prices. Case in point, the Maryland. And some new young artists are doing surprisingly well, too. Here's how art sales work. If you buy a piece of art from a gallery or even a big art fair like Art Basel or Freeze, the amount you paid is private. It isn't reported. But because bidding happens in public at auctions, they're our only data point when it comes to price. Auctions are a crucial barometer of an artist's worth. And they're also a way to measure how the market is doing more broadly. Auctions can be unpredictable because, well, people are unpredictable. You don't know who will come and who will get carried away in the moment. But these days, it's become a lot safer. And that's by design. Insiders would rather know that a piece of art going up to auction is likely to sell and how much it's likely to sell for. Let's look again at the Maryland. It came out the collection of um, two very well-known Swiss art dealers called mm-hmm. Doris and Thomas Amman. So they have a they have a provenance and a history and a story around them that people like. But it wasn't bought. You know, you might imagine there was a there was a room full of people on the phones to Dubai and Hong Kong and London and all around the world. But it was actually bought by Larry Gagosian, so an art mm-hmm. dealer who had worked a lot with the Amans in their lifetime. And who, I mean, from what I understand, he, he, he's not buying it for his living room. He's buying it to pass on to someone else. You may know that Larry Gagosian is one of the most influential gallerists of our time. Over the last 44 years, he's represented artists like Basquiat and Liechtenstein, and he represented Warhol. He actually sold that Warhol the Shot Sage Blue Marilyn, to the Amans in 1986. So the same man who originally sold the Marilyn has now just bought it back. We don't know what it cost in 1986, but we do know that another Marilyn from the series sold for $4 million a few years later. So the question is, how did this happen? How did a painting presumably worth around $4 million become worth 4,000% more? One reason is that the painting itself has a famed history. This is a painting that has a lot of story behind it, and people mm-hmm. love stories. So it's called Shot Sage Blue Marilyn because it was one of, I think, five works that actually was shot with, with a bullet, but this was one that didn't get damaged, which is another important point. Plus, it's Marilyn Monroe and Andy Warhol. So you've just got brand after brand after brand mm-hmm. coming together in one painting. There are other things that the art market values, too. Like, has a painting been in a show at a good museum? More valuable. Is it big? That makes it more valuable. And then there's the fact that the value of the whole art market rose over that time. It's worth thinking of Andy Warhol as the artist of post-war capitalism. I mean, that's what we're talking about. Decades that have seen the growth of stock exchanges, of art as an investment, of money. Um, and he was the artist. I mean, he, he loved making money part of what he was doing. But there's another point as well, I think, worth making about these big collectors. And as you said, some of the 
biggest collectors are the big gallerists themselves. That's Jan Daly coming in with the big picture. If you already own several Warhols, or even, let's say, a lot of Warhols, really a lot, every time a Warhol makes a record price, the value of all your others Hmm. goes up. Right, right. So in a sense, by bidding that incredible amount of money, let's say Larry Gagosian is actually augmenting the value of all the other Warhols that he owns because the whole thing gets lifted up. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is the super duper spectacular one and they're not all worth that kind of money, but it maintains the value of your existing holdings. In fact, it increases it. That's a really good point. Actually, in the context of Warhol, particularly interesting because he was such a prolific artist, prolific and made multiples. Made multiples, exactly. So if you're a big player in the market, you can kind of play it to your advantage. This one sale impacts how all Warhols will be appraised going forward. So it's very much in the interests of those who already own these blue chip mm-hmm. artists to make sure that the market stays incredibly high. Right. And if they do that by buying them themselves, then, you know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's one way to do it. Just to add to that, I got a ton of marketing emails very soon after the sale that sort of started with, with Warhol now worth this amount of money. Why don't you invest in, you know, right. so on and so forth. The art market hasn't always worked this way. In the past, gallerists like Larry Gagosian had a much more distinct role. And so did dealers and auction houses. Here's how we always understood the art market to work. There are gallerists, artists, dealers, and auction houses. The gallerists work directly with an artist. They often take on new living artists and foster their careers and then sell their work for the first time. That's known as the primary market. Then there's the secondary market. The artist is now out of the picture, and it's just about the value of that art. Dealers look for collectors trying to offload their art, buy it low, and resell it high, often at auctions. And in the past, dealers were the only people allowed to buy and sell at auctions at all. But I think it's fair to say that the whole thing has changed hugely in the past, I don't know, certainly in the past 10 years. Mm. I mean, when I first knew the art market, there was a huge divide between the auction world and the gallery world. They didn't speak to each other. They were Mm. hotly in competition with each other. There wasn't the sort of melange and crossover that there is now. One of the things that shattered all the barriers was in 2008 when Damien Hirst took a huge collection of his old and new work, had a single artist sale sort of by himself and made that those enormous prices. Nobody had really done that before. It just kind of broke all the boundaries. You know, artists didn't collaborate directly with auction houses like that. They didn't take new work. You know, they just didn't do any of that stuff. It was just a complete breaking of the boundaries. So when Damien Hirst sold his work directly through an auction, he skipped a bunch of steps. He cut out the gallerist. And when Larry Gagosian goes to an auction to buy work for a collector, he's also skipping steps. He's playing the role of a dealer, but he's also a gallerist and a collector himself. So there are fewer players. Some of them have multiple roles and they're all talking to each other. And then, stay with me, on top of that, there's been another big change since the pandemic. Live streaming. 
what happened during the pandemic is a kind of triple whammy effect. It's sort of like the Damien Hirst effect times a billion because suddenly auctions are going online and everyone in the world can see them. So now anyone can buy at auctions. Really, anyone in the world. You don't even need to be there. You can just bid online. And the auction houses, they now need to do more of their best to attract everyone. So they've taken on more and more of a selling role. That's why they roll out the Maryland red carpet. That's why they do the Rockefeller Center projection. And that's also why they want to avoid surprises. There are too many potential buyers and too many unknowns. So I suppose this is just to show that it's tempting to think with these incredible results and extraordinary seasons like the one we've just had, that art goes on going up and up and up and up. Well, possibly a dozen names do that. The others are subject to fluctuation. So that we always just hear the good news in the art market. Hmm. We very rarely hear the bad news. <laughs> 100%. And the bad news includes things just not selling at all at auction, mm-hmm. which is another real problem for the artist and for the, of course, for the sellers. I mean, people talk a lot about how art is a great place to put your money, especially in difficult times. It's safe. You know, you bought it for X amount of millions and that's, you know, better than the bank, etc. Well, it isn't quite that simple. Right. Wow. So do you think, Jen, if you're very wealthy, is art a good investment? Oh, well, look, Melanie wrote a whole book on this. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Mel. And she's an economist. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I I came out of the the finance world and it it really horrified me that people thought that art was a good investment, partly for all the reasons that Jan said. And and the holding costs, you you have to insure your art. You have to conserve it and these numbers really really add up and that's often not taken into account it's also not useful in an economic term i mean you can't live in a painting i'm afraid right. what are the fundamentals i mean i you know i love art this is why i do what i do but it is paint on canvas so mm-hmm. i i find it a very concerning idea as an investment but that yeah. since i mean the book was published in 2014 and since then i think there has become a more financialized, very top blue chip end. You see people lending money against art. You see people giving guarantees that work will sell. So there's a small area that is more secure, I suppose, than I I thought when I started writing. But um, I still (laughs) think there are safer things to put your money in. So what about the non-blue chip artists, like these young living artists whose works are being valued at 20 grand and then selling for a million at auction? They're being affected too. Collectors who aren't going to spend on a big war hall, they can bet on the career of a living artist at auction, like spend a million now and hope the artist will become the next war hall. One example of a living artist who's done extremely well this season is Anna Wyant. Now, I know this is going to sound like I'm making it up, But she's also represented by Larry Gagosian, and she dates him. At a Sotheby's sale this May, her painting Falling Woman was expected to be sold for $300,000, but it went for $1.6 million. I asked Jan what we should think about these sales. I mean, we want young artists to be recognized. I mean, of course, it's wonderful for young artists suddenly to get this huge sale, but then they have to maintain those prices, because if then they... Other works of theirs come up for sale, 
either through their gallery or privately or at auction, and they don't reach those astonishing prices, there's a real problem. And sometimes Mm. young artists' careers actually crash, completely crash because of this. Right. So, So their art gets overvalued or valued very high at a young age, and then they kind of can't maintain it through their lifetime. Well, they can't maintain it even sometimes the following year or the year after. (laughs) And then the the work then has almost no value because it's like a junk bond, you know, it's just, it's just sort of gone. Are there any like uh, very egregious examples of that where an artist has been very highly valued and then the value of their work has crashed? Well, you even see it in mega artists, you know, living artists, even Jeff Koons and Damien Hirst, quite a lot of the time now, their works are not selling for what they sold 10, 15 years mm-hmm. ago. There was a, a group loosely known as the Zombie Formalists, which had names like Lucy and Smith. And I mean, people just don't even yeah. remember their names now. And again, were selling for easily seven figures. Right. And now you, I mean, they don't come to market anymore. This is the thing you can hide that something is worth nothing by not selling it. I remember Lucian Smith with the fire extinguisher. Exactly. So investing in art is complicated, like investing in any market, especially if you're not an insider. It's affected by global events. Right now, a lot of art is being bought at the Hong Kong fairs because people are leaving amid China's crackdown on dissent. And they want to get their money out by buying assets like art. In the past, many wealthy Russians were buying art at auctions. But today, in the midst of the war in Ukraine, Russians have been largely absent from fairs and auctions. Also, we're in uncertain times. Economists are predicting a recession. We're just getting over a pandemic. Thank you both so much. I have one more quick question for you, which is just, you know, as we wrap up this season and you look forward to the next season, I'm curious what you're anticipating. You know, we're in the midst of this global recession scare. I'm curious if that will affect the art market or you think it's affecting it at all or whether it's just irrelevant (laughs) for the super wealthy and kind of what you think we should be looking out for. I do get the sense we're in a little bit of a bubble. Now, the market also loves confidence. I mean, it's based on confidence and we've just had some big sales and that will help. I think what happens in the next couple of months in the stock market, so during the art market's quiet season, if the stock markets, if the Russian invasion, if the crypto markets keep bringing out very, very negative news, we might see supply dry up for the second half of the year. But Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I think the variables are that are huge. It could either be that or we could all be, you know, partying in Miami in December. (laughs) Well, yes, I agree completely that, even though we've just had this stonking season, which has been completely record-breaking, things are very uncertain. But one of the things that did happen during the pandemic years is that the rich got richer. Yeah. And I think uh, one woman who I know well who works for an auction house said to me, Jan, it's not about the rich getting richer, it's about the rich feeling richer. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And I think the rich have felt richer. Yeah. And... You know, you feel richer, you go and buy a nice piece of art. Yeah. Jan and Melanie, thank you so much. This was so informative and fascinating. Thank you, Lina. Good to speak. It was lots of fun. Thanks a lot. Alex 
Alex Rotter is one of the main engineers behind these sales. You heard him at the top of the show. His team organized the Amman sale and the sale of the Maryland in particular. He's the head of 20th and 21st century art at Christie's. We do a lot. We are about two thirds of the revenue of Christie's is this 2021 group because again it has all like from you know from from Van Gogh to Monet to Warhol and Pollock to de Kooning to Basquiat uh, to Koons we that all falls into the same category so now that we've talked through the market we invited him into the studio to hear his side of it I wanted to get his take on the season on the Maryland and on how it all works behind the scenes so, you know, in this season, the art world broke a lot of new records. First of all, how did Christie's come to handle the Amman collection? Was there a relationship there already? Were they shopping it around? So in this case, they weren't shopping it around. In this case, it was a relationship um, that that we have built, that I've built over time with the principals, with the advisors, with the foundation. Um, this was a longer process. Um, so it was just an ongoing relationship that we had. But normally, a, a, a big collection like this, uh, a significant like that this gets bit between the auction houses. The Amman collection that evening was special because it was a non-competitive deal. They knew they wanted to work with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to work with us because I hope that, you know, they felt something that we're the right team mm-hmm. um, uh, of, of, of a combination of knowledge Marketing, we did a lot of marketing. I'm personally very keen on and pushing in the art world the, how art is presented. Mm-hmm. That is that is kind of my thing. So at Christie's, I transform rooms, I transform galleries. Sometimes you need to lead people to it. So I don't know if you experienced the Maryland of the Amman collection, but we did something special. There was a red carpet. There were lights. <laughs> we put a lot of thought into it in creating a flow and creating a space and creating a reveal. Yeah. Because I do think it's important. So I saw you bidding on the Maryland that evening as well um, for a client. I'm curious what it felt like for you in the auction room that night. It felt a little slow to me. Look, I understand it felt a little slow to you. But then you also have to think, you know, (laughs) every bid increment is $10 million. (laughs) So I do think people deserve the time to think about this. no, No matter how much money you have. Yeah. It's a significant purchase. So there's a seriousness about it. You know, you can have someone on the phone that you can influence and say, like, come give me another bid Mm -hmm. if you sell something for $5,000. But, you know, like, and you can say, like, you know, I'll make it up to you (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or anything like that. But at this significant level, it's really I am a facilitator. Now, how I felt during the auction that's tricky because I have a dual position. For me, it's not like who am I on the phone with or why I'm bidding it. But like I go into the auction and tell the auctioneer, okay, so this person is going to be bidding on this. This is who you're going to have here. Mm -hmm. So I am orchestrating everything on the higher end Mm -hmm. uh, as much as you can orchestrate it. Because again, it depends on the person on the phone, what they're going to say, but you can do it up in a lead up. And if you feel that somebody is going to have a lower bid. So I knew I had a lower bid. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to come in early. Right. So there is there's strategy to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, it is just when people, because you can't do anything until somebody tells you, go. 
Right. Or uh, we had one person in the room that was reported, Larry Gagosian, the big dealer. Um, he was bidding in the room for a client. Um, so, you know, I knew he was coming you in. Was, yeah. Did you know that that would be happening? I knew this was ha- yeah. happening, yes. Um, but, uh, you know, how high, at what point, yeah. I don't know the details. Yeah. Okay, so, Alex, we are running this conversation alongside this kind of explainer about the art market. I'm wondering how you think about these superlative sales, like the most expensive piece of American art, of 20th century art, of art made by a living artist. You know, is it always good to get the record-setting price? Uh, is it always good to get the record-setting price? From my perspective and what what I have to do for my job, I do have to look for something that excites people. Yeah. So if I can come up with something that gets into the press, gets maybe even a podcast, <laughs> uh, uh, but gets people talking about it mm-hmm. and gets people talking about it, which helps me in the short time because it'll make more money. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is a business, so I have to be looking for that. I'm driving the art market, really, right. because I'm the public arm of the art market or we are the public arm of the art market. So whatever we do or whatever performance we do is talked about because it's so transparent, because it's the only real price you see and that there's a real transaction there. The private art market is extremely affected by the sales. So for me to promote pieces of significance of historical, racial, uh, price, you know, there's various uh, ideas of significance and it gets picked up. It's good because it broadens the spectrum of what we do. Therefore, it broadens the spectrum of art. That I made this promotional material about Marilyn, more people came to see her. Mm-hmm. And I think she deserved it to be seen more. So I do it for a reason. I We don't just do it to drive the prices, but obviously that's a side product that we want. Mm-hmm. Right. You're selling kind of the blue chip art that affects the rest of the market. Mm-hmm. The superlative sales often drive the market up. But are there any like long-term negative consequences to driving the market up? It's a very serious question. Yeah. And it's obviously something, a question that, you know, I think about also. But when you say driving the prices up, and I think I use the same expression, mm-hmm. I'm driving the prices up by finding the right thing for the moment and people respond to it. It's not me thinking, let's think of something that nobody else thinks of. I'm just responding to what I'm hearing, what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, Just like the stock market, the art market goes in waves and there are higher points and lower points. It doesn't swing that dramatically. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that the $200 million or the 195 that the Maryland did will have an effect on the art market. But it's not that every Warhol is worth more now after this price. It's not. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say, but (laughs) it's not. Over time... It gives Warhol and Warhol's market a market credibility, additional to it art historical credibility, which which Warhol always had. It assures also that every time Warhol is mentioned, the record is mentioned. So Warhol stays also on the forefront of people's minds. So I do what I feel is right. We do what we feel is right. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to achieve those big prices. Uh, But truly, because we believe in the art that we're selling and 
It's our job. Yeah, yeah. Alex, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we speak with the playwright Michael R. Jackson, who wrote the wildly acclaimed Broadway musical Strange Loop. It won a Pulitzer in 2020, and it just recently won the Tony for Best Musical. We also talk about the dark side of the fine dining scene in Copenhagen with Imogen West Knights. If you have a minute to review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be a total gift to us. You can also keep in touch with us and say hi in a few ways. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can see behind-the-scenes podcast content on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital sub and a very good deal on FT Weekend in print every Saturday. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Neve Rowe is our intern. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Take care, enjoy your weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. It's summer, and you know what that means. It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens.